0: Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host Monica Hadley and with me is, well not physically with me, but uh, virtually with me is my mother and co-host Caroline Kilborn. Hi Caroline. Good morning Good morning, everyone. <laughs> and uh, it sounds like you've got a little, maybe a little bit of a frog in your throat this morning.
1: Well, you know, I just got my COVID booster. I'm not really feeling that well today. Oh, that's yeah. That's, yeah, I yeah. that
0: yeah. It can be it can be rough. But you're one of the few people I know who has not gotten covid. <laughs> I'm another yeah, one. True. Really, congratulations. I, I, you know, I, I really got it and I thought for sure I was doomed, but <laughs> I got it. I really was careful, but I one time took a ma- in the summer of 2022 I was flying I always wore a mask when I flew but I took it off for a while and I was sitting next to somebody from Ireland I was eating and I took it off and that was right when that maybe it was Delta or something had really hit Ireland hard and um, I'm pretty sure that's how I got it.
2: Oh that's but, too bad. yeah yeah
0: but but you know thankfully you know, because I was vaccinated, I didn't really get sick. Yeah. So, so that was good. Anyway, (laughs) that's an interesting segue into today's uh, story. And our guest today is Audrey Gale, and she long dreamed of being a writer, but It took her a while to get there. After 20 plus years in the banking industry, she decided to pursue her master's in fiction writing at the University of Southern California. Her first novel, a legal thriller entitled The Sausage Maker's Daughters, was published under the name A.G.S. Johnson. That novel explores one woman's struggle to find her place amidst the upheaval of the radical 1960s. Her second that we're talking about today, The Human Trial, is the first book in a medical thriller trilogy inspired by her own experiences with the gap between traditional medicine and approaches based on the findings of the great physicists of the 20th century like Einstein and Bohr. Uh, Both of these books incorporate Gail's fascination with historical and scientific research and with women finding their places. And Gail lives in Los Angeles with her husband and dogs. And she likes to hike in the Santa Monica Mountains. (laughs) So welcome (laughs) to Writer's Voices, Audrey. Thank you, Monica. Thank
2: you, Caroline. I'm happy to be here with you today. Are you guys in Iowa? We are. Because I went to Drake. Oh wow! Did you? Oh I my did. goodness!
0: Wow! I did. Um, didn't your dad go to Drake?
2: No, my yeah, dad. No, did. no, uh-huh. my,
0: my Caroline's dad, my grandfather. Oh, Caroline. Oh, yeah, Yes, yes yeah. he did. Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah.
2: Uh-huh. Well, I, anyway, it was. Uh, I thought I was so brave because I'm from a family of five girls from the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area. And all my older sisters went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which is—I did do a nod to that because that's where my first novel is set.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: um, but I just thought it would be so exciting to get out of state, so I I got all the way from Wisconsin to Iowa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, for those of our listeners who are not in Iowa um, and are not. Well-versed in U.S. geography, Wisconsin is one of our neighboring states, so it isn't very far to go. That puts it in perspective. Yes, it's not like going to California, which which is where you ended up.
2: And a lot of
0: Iowans over the years have ended up in California because mom had, well, her only brother – well, we moved to California. She and my father moved to California. I was born there, but then ended up back in Iowa. Her brother moved to California, stayed there. And of your mother, my grandmother had eight siblings, and how many of them were in California? Three? Oh, let's see. Helen, Ed, Mary Yeah. Lynn. Yeah, three of them moved to California.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. So, right.
2: Well, despite what you may have heard, it is a nice place to live. I know. I know. <laughs> well, it's
1: getting some bad. It's gotten some bad press lately, but I think people enjoy it. to the live there. Yeah.
2: It's 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 expensive relative to yeah. many states, but um, but there's a reason for that. It, you know, the weather is almost unbeatable, and. Mm-hmm. You know, you we have the Sierras, we have the ocean, we have beautiful beaches. I, I mean it's a it it's really felt like home from the day I arrived in l a
0: mm. oh
2: good, good but,
0: so tell us about kind of the the over the theme or the overriding plot of the human trial what's what's this story about?
2: The story is about. A young man from a violently abusive home, who it happens to be absolutely brilliant, and um, that's probably his problem in his home because uh, his brilliance makes his siblings, his older brothers and his father feel inferior. so that's probably some of the background of the violence anyway, he. He has finished high school by the age of 16, just on sheer brain power, and everything was easy for him. And he um, has an opportunity, helped through his high school counselor, to get a full scholarship at Harvard University in Boston. And he, you know, there's a little back and forth, but he eventually leaps at the chance to get out of his home. So he leaves Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he goes to Boston at 16, dirt poor, never been away from home before. And he um, begins his new life. So he ends up using his schol- uh, the full scholarship ride all the way through pre-med, med, and then his specialization in pathology. And while he is... W- Attending Harvard and finishing all of his degrees, he happens to work in the medical lab, and he meets a physicist who's there developing a rather unprecedented and still unsurpassed today in today's (laughs) Um, yeah for sure microscope. And so they end up collaborating, and it takes him into a direction that at first. Randall Archer is the name of the main character. Uh, At first, Dr. Archer is thrilled about these kind of breakthrough discoveries. The the microscope is such, with so many different types of lighting mechanisms, that they're able to look at live specimens for the first time maybe ever. Uh, And of course, I should say this takes place during the Great Depression. So this is the, the 1930s. Anyway, that discovery then takes him into a whole sort of uh, uh, divergence away from normal medical school practices, divergence, excuse me. And he, he realizes that what he's seeing is starting to take away the foundation of his Harvard medical degree. It flies in the face of many, many, many uh, of the classes that he's taken and the precepts that he's learned so that's sort of the trajectory of the of the of the plot in the grandest terms in the broadest terms um he he's veering further and further away from his medical training he it's the depression he realizes that this could become a great threat to the medical establishment and that's where we'll leave it, I think. Just... <laughs> Unless you want me to tell you the end, I don't to do.
0: <laughs> no, no, we don't want. We don't want to have any spoilers here. No spoilers. <laughs> so, what drew you to this story? I mean, is it based on a true? You know, are the characters based on real life people?
2: And the, the, so the entire story is inspired by some historical events. There were a couple of scientists working in the 20s, mostly in the 30s, and maybe slightly into the 40s, who um, who who were doing work like this. So my idea was I didn't really want to I didn't I didn't really want to have to delve into their lives. It's hard work. It may or may not be interesting, and, you know, and then you have to be very careful about what you say about actual people. So I instead decided to focus on the science that they had developed because it was very complicated. It is the gap between uh, the physicists' discovery of the early 1900s, like Einstein and Bohr, as we mentioned, and the medical establishment to this day. There's a gap there and And so, um I focused on the science instead of the actual people, but the people are completely fictional, but it is based on two real men, and it is based on real science.
0: And what do you attribute this gap to? I attribute
2: it to I attribute it to an sort of the inconvenience of so much of medicine being undermined during a terrible time in our economy, worldwide economy, that would have put so much of traditional medicine uh, at at risk. Let's just leave it at risk. But it it, it means the, the whole medical establishment, the way doctors are trained, so the educational the way they're certified and recertified and so forth, and the way the regulators um, in Washington are sort of on board with all of this. Well, I've come to call this, as I talk about this book, the interlocking directorate of um, the medical establishment. I mean, the very high level, the people who set policy and determine what doctors have to know and not know and so on. The drug companies are certainly complicit because they have, since the war, become enormously wealthy and enormously powerful. And then the regulators and our government officials who, quite frankly, the drug companies own. I have a wonderful quote quote from from a doctor at Harvard called, his name is Dr. Abraham Abramson, Dr. Abramson. Said there's only one place in Washington that there is complete bipartisan agreement, and that is in the acceptance of taking large contributions from drug companies. <laughs> 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 uh, and wow, that is wow. a precious quote to me because it really ultimately is sort of what we're we're writing about. We're writing about if 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 the basis of our health and disease states. Is somehow an energetic electrical phenomenon, then it's going to be you're going to be hard pressed to patent anything that addresses that. And patents are the way of medicine today. I think I think you'd have to agree. Um, the things we hear about the only things we hear about are the things that have patents, and they are pushed hard. If you watch the evening news, oh my gosh. You know, there they, they are so many new diseases you can't keep up <laughs> and, and a patented solution, of course. <laughs>
0: of course. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, that's a really interesting um, way to look at it. And, you know, I've always yeah. I've always thought, OK, we can look at our the functioning of our bodies as um From a a chemical perspective, Mm -hmm. a mechanical perspective, Mm -hmm. um, a, like you say, kind of electromagnetic perspective. And, of course, they all, they're all true. They're all true. They're all true. And I'm probably missing something. So there's chemical, there's, and by chemical, I would include hormonal and, you know, all of those things. There's um, mechanical, it's like, you know, bones and joints and you know, all of how things fit together <laughs> and and move and, move and um, electromagnetic. And then what, I feel like there's another one, but. Um, you know, that reminds me
2: of something, Monica. So I had some personal experiences that led me to this story. And I will say, quite frankly, I really had no special interest in this area except for, Physics, especially quantum physics, always intrigued me because it's so counterintuitive. It was such oh was such a mind worker, you know? So um I after several experiences that had gotten me down to this story, I had moved to Los Angeles from San Francisco and I asked my new internist if he thought we were electrical or chemical first. Which one? And he got so angry with me so angry like i was trying to embarrass him because that is not part of a medical education so um so anyway so i so that that caused me to realize that there's a, t- a couple of things that's a medical education issue but also there is over 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 specialization in our various disciplines in science so electrical energetic issues have been part of physics and electrical engineering never a part of medicine and vice versa they're they're separate so so of course he didn't know but if you think about the big so I had a very very notable physicist advising me on this book thank God. And <laughs> And I uh, I I said, it really goes all the way back to the Big Bang, doesn't it? And he said, yeah, it does. This massive explosion of energy that as it's moving outward, and it is still moving outward, by the way, they can measure the expansion of the universe. It's starting to cool. It's starting to form particles and so forth. And they are either attracting each other or repelling each other and that is forming everything in the universe. Eventually it becomes atoms, molecules, and every kind of, of material you can think of. You, in fact, you can't think of anything outside of this, including us, we're part of that creation. And so we are at our sub, 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 sub microscopic level, we are, just like the desk I'm sitting at and the chair you're sitting in, we are at our most fundamental basis, vibrating packets of energy called quanta that condense in infinite variety throughout the universe.
0: And that was the other, the other kind of category, but maybe it, it's more connected with the electrical, but vibrational and um, because yes. everything really has to do with vibration. Absolutely. And, yes. You know whether something is liquid or solid is all about how uh, the level of vibration within that. Mm-hmm. And so when when we freeze things and the vibration um, it changes the vibration of the molecules and make turns them into a solid and when you heat it and and becomes liquid i think i don't i'm not a physicist i know almost nothing about science but i'm guessing that the vibration must increase Uh as as it gets hotter and um and to, to eventually it's in a gaseous state and music is all about vibration it was it was Amazing to me, and Mom, Caroline, you probably always knew this, but that when I learned that the vibration of a middle C and a high C, that the high C is exactly double the vibrational frequency of middle C. It's interesting you say that,
2: yes, <laughs> um, because the experience I had with my father led me to exactly that conclusion. So my father was diagnosed with leukemia, and he was – the third step in a long line of serious interactions I've had that keeps bringing me back to this science until I finally couldn't let it go. Anyway, he, he got, um, he got, he was diagnosed with leukemia and I had previously learned about these scientists through my veterinarian. I had a very sick dog when I moved to LA and my uh and I, I went to multiple vets because I hadn't gotten one yet, and they all said the same thing: she's a 13-year-old golden retriever, just put her down, she's had her life. And so, um, and so I, I couldn't do it because I had just arrived in in LA, and I was, you know, she was my best friend and my only friend. And so I looked up in the yellow pages, if you recall what those used to look like, <laughs> uh, holistic vets. And I found two and I called them both. And the one that could take me first is the one that I went to. And he became a very close friend of mine. Anyway, while he was treating my dog, I was asking him, what are you doing? This looks like voodoo. You know, he was using vibrations. He was using sound spectrum. He was using chiropractic and acupuncture and a whole host of things. And of course, my dog recovered rather rapidly and lived for three more years. And... um Meanwhile, my dad was diagnosed with leukemia, as I said, and he came to my house here in Los Angeles after his first and last chemotherapy treatment. And he said very emphatically, I don't care. I will not do that again. I am done with chemo. I'd rather die. I said, oh, okay. Okay, dad, I know you haven't asked me, but if you asked me, I would take... I would ask you to come with me to my vet. (laughs) Only my dad. I'm telling you, only my dad. He said, well, what have I got to lose? So off we went to the vet. And the vet made, he explained that he didn't have the sophisticated equipment of the original two scientists. But he could take their very high frequency vibrations. And he could step it down like you said, in octaves. Like, so high C, middle C, low C, they're all related. They're directly related. And he ended up making another blast from the past, a cassette tape in the auditory spectrum related to the uh, the vibration of his disease microbes. And my dad took it home, and I'm pretty sure he slept with that cassette tape because he listened to it night and day. And he quickly recovered and he went back to his MDs and, and they were expecting the worst for sure because he'd refused chemo. And they were shocked when they examined him. And what they said to him was, oh, my gosh, that is the damnedest case of spontaneous remission we have ever seen. And, of course, he can't talk to them about what he did because my vet would go to jail. He he can't practice medicine, and medicine is very, 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 they're strictly guarding their turf. So it would have been bad for him. So we didn't, you know, we, did, we never told him what we, we never told his doctors what we had done. And then my dad died some years later of pneumonia, not leukemia.
0: Wow. Now, there are people doing sound vibration therapies of various kinds. There's one right here in our little town of Fairfield. And I somehow they get away with it. They're not they don't I guess they don't claim to be practicing medicine.
2: I was going to say, is it an MD or who? Is no,
0: it? no, just an average
2: person. Uh huh. <laughs> well, you know, so I'll tell you what. Uh, If the medical establishment gets wind that they are offering cures or even medical treatment, they will be in trouble, Mm. those people you're talking about. But if they're saying, you know, it's just a meditative state or if they're positioning it correctly, there is a vast underground, actually, Monica, that uses this science. A vast underground, and 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 if you want it to be above ground, you kind of have to go to Europe. Mm. Um, it's it's used throughout Europe, and it's a particularly there's a very interesting um, development happening in Germany on this vibrational healing approach that basically just is a nod to what our bodies are—a bundle of energy.
0: Well, I think that. Possibly. There is also a, an um, Ayurveda clinic that is mm-hmm. using it here that is run by doctors. And Interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm not absolutely sure, but I think they have a sound there, a sound by sound therapy. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I but you got to understand I'm we're in Fairfield, Iowa. Mm -hmm. This is the um, home of the Transcendental Meditation Movement in the United States. Oh, is it? Uh, Yes. Interesting. So so there's um, certainly a lot of um, holistic treatments available here.
2: Well, that's fantastic.
0: I'll remember that when I'm feeling ill.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's all in how you position it. Uh, the medical establishment is very, very, very specific. In fact, I have a, I go to a, it's called the American Medical Pharmacy, and it's in Marina Del Rey. And I go there for, they have the most incredible uh, natural products. But I know that the man who started that has been arrested several times for, quote, unquote, Practicing medicine without oh, a license, wow. so you know uh, positioning and and success level and uh, attention being paid, all of that would factor in. Yeah.
1: yeah. Monica, yeah. yes. You know, you know your your niece Lauren in her treatment of horses that have problems. She has been using vibrations and different techniques for quite a while and with
2: great success. On her
0: horses? Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, it's the veterinarians who seem to know what's happening. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. So who were the actual scientists that developed this, you know, the theories about vibrational treatment?
2: Well, I think the most famous one is the inventor of the microscope that sort of opened the world's eyes to live specimens. You'll notice on my uh, cover of my book, The Human Trial, that there's a specimen slide used in the word trial. Um, that was pivotal. He, his microscope was pivotal, and his name is Royal Raymond Rife, R-I-F-E. <laughs> and there's quite a bit on the Internet about him. Um, you'd be able to find a lot about him and his microscope and his very sad life.
0: mm why was it so sad? Well, he was sort of
2: ruined reputation-wise. His all of his microscopes were confiscated. They have never reappeared. Um, he was driven to drink and destruction, basically, and then died suspiciously.
0: Oh. Wow. Mm. Okay, well.
1: <laughs> so this, is, this is a fiction book, but there's a, there's, there's other stuff in here, too.
2: <laughs> there's a lot of uh, true, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of, I, I. as I said, I really wanted to focus on the science. The problem with the science is most of us aren't scientists. Most of us aren't physicists. Most of us aren't MDs, even.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so what I told to both the pathology uh, friend of mine who was my tutor there through the process of writing this book and my physicist friend who was on the physics side is the problem they have is they don't speak English. They speak in a professional jargon that nobody really understands. And so my biggest challenge was to take what they know and Sort of put it together here because that's what the science was about—the the meeting of those two disciplines—and put it in plain English because my my target audience is not scientists. My target audience is the broadest range of of readership I can reach, so it has to be in plain enough English. And um, and as I say, that was my really biggest challenge, but there was another interesting quote that um, I wish I'd written that one down, Uh, a a guy talking about our medical system in the United States and saying "It, it, it it is such a behemoth of these interlocking directorates, as I call them, that the only way change could come about is if the public demands it. So that
0: was my motivation. I mean yeah. that's what I'm really hoping for. To help inspire that demand. Right, to just
2: at least raise awareness. Yeah. And yeah. and then and then hopefully that does lead to some change. What we need from our government is we need true regulation, independent and transparent. We need that. Um Germany has that. That's maybe why they're ahead of us here.
0: Wow. You're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Audrey Gale, author of The Human Trial. It's, uh, so interesting to me that people could be healed by this
1: mecha- mechanical situation. I, I just, it just, I, I don't know. Of course, I don't have, know anything about medicine or anything either. So, but can, can you explain how that worked?
2: Um, yeah, yeah. Let me try. And I, I do believe that um, it's developed in such a way through the novel, as the suspense is building and the danger is building. Uh, they're seeing more and more that uh, what the scientists discovered, and that is once mm-hmm. they look at live specimen of any disease, they then could zero in on its exact frequency, its vibration rate, as oh. as Mark was saying, we're all, we're all vibrating entities. They could look for mm-hmm. these microbes and it's it's its specific um, vibration rate. And then they found that if they could recreate that vibration rate through some simple uh, simple machinery that's used in physics, it's called a cathode ray tube is one way to do it um if they could recreate that exact frequency and expose the diseased body to that frequency um uh, first of all the vibration the the two vibrations are in resonance so they're resonating together but as the exposure continues the resonant the increased exposure to the vibration starts to change things it starts to change the cell shape ultimately the cell function and ultimately, it overwhelms the disease microbes and they die. Mm-hmm. And your body will pass that out over time naturally. it gets rid of the dead toxins. And um, and the nice thing and the amazing thing and the maybe the most threatening thing is there's no side effects. It does not affect any other tissue or, any other cells. That That is amazing. <laughs> that really is. It is amazing. It is amazing. That's why it's taken me some years to get my arms around all of this, because just like you guys, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physicist. I've always had a certain interest in quantum physics, just as I said. But no, I have a business degree and I have a master's degree in writing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this is no from great. <laughs> so, Audrey, why don't you read a little bit from the human trial? Okay.
2: Um, I, I have chosen a scene. It's in the fourth chapter, so pretty early on in the book. The chapter is called Crash, and the year is 1929. And it starts on page 40 in my uh, book. And the reason I chose it is because it's the first place that all three major characters are, so to speak, on stage together. It's the first time we see all three of them as they are uh, crossing Harvard University's campus on a very cold, wintry evening, going in different directions, but they bump into each other, okay? So I'll start now. And again, Randy Archer is the protagonist. Archer's years on campus had perfected his ability to move through it unnoticed. From the first, he'd learned he had enough challenges fitting in without spotlighting them. Bundled in all the clothing he owned against a frigid wind scudding snow across the frozen earth, Archer kept his head down and his shoulders hunched against the wintry gusts. Moving fast retained some bodily warmth while lessening his time in the unforgiving elements. In the evening gloom of the short winter day, he scurried toward the medical lab, feeling invisible and enjoying the anonymity. But despite the frigid weather, he was not alone. Dodging all obstacles which could slow him, disjointed snippets of crunching footsteps and muffled conversations, even bursts of laughter infiltrated his scarf-bound ears. He trudged determinedly onward, even when he heard what sounded like his name, assuming it was no more than a trick of the howling wind. It was far too cold to stop anyway, until ice-crushing footsteps forced him to a halt. Randall! It was unmistakable. Archer glanced up into the face of Adam Wakefield, barely visible beneath a warm-looking fedora which Archer eyed enviously. With a thick scarf knotted around his neck and ears, Wakefield looked impervious to the cold. A heavy woolen coat extended the length of his body. No, Archer concluded, the coat's more luxurious than wool. Cashmere? Whoa there, Dr. Archer, it's me, Adam, Adam Wakefield, from the lab. Archer gritted his teeth, rich layers of wool and cashmere close enough to touch, adding to his physical discomfort. But the threadbare scarf he tied around his own face made his expression invisible. Hi, Archer mumbled through the wool. the cold already overtaking him. Where have you been, Wakefield demanded. Haven't seen you in the lab in a couple weeks. An extremely demanding rotation, Archer replied, risking the uncovering of his face to do so. But it's over now and I have time for my extracurricular lab work again. I'm heading there now. You? He drew the wrap back over his face, shifting from foot to foot to force his already coagulating circulation. "'Shake a leg, Adam,' a female voice behind them called out. "'We're freezing here.' Both Archer and Wakefield glanced toward the voice coming from the small group Wakefield had detached himself from. He nodded at them and turned back to Archer, who stared longingly at the assemblage in their insulating furs, hats, boots, and gloves. "'You're freezing,' he grumbled inwardly, shifting faster and hugging himself, aware his meager layering looked ridiculous compared to real winter clothing." Who are these overly tall people, he wondered crossly. Is everyone in Adam's world as tall and lanky and, yes, regal, as he? No lab for me tonight, I'm afraid, Wakefield answered, Archer's forgotten question. My best friend since childhood, we attended St. Paul's together, is celebrating his birthday with a few of us and his sister. I've known the family my entire life. And, well, I'm taking the night off. My microscope will have to wait. Adam? A furbideck presence inserted itself. We'll die if we don't get out of this wind. What's the holdup here? When Wakefield acknowledged the female speaker, his blue eyes softened perceptibly, and Archer noticed. Sorry, Elizabeth, be right there. When she didn't ret- retreat, instead staring at Archer curiously, Wakefield said, oh, I forget myself. Elizabeth, this is a friend from the medical lab. He likes off hours as much as I do. We tend to share the empty lab between us most nights. Elizabeth Parrish, meet Randall Archer, Dr. Randall Archer, M.D., interning just now, but still keeping hours in the lab. He nodded at Archer. You must need no sleep if what one hears about medical training is true. Randall, meet Elizabeth Parrish. With a fuzzy cap tightly fitting her scalp, a few dark brown waves framing her striking face, the young woman offered Archer her gloved hand, a smile lighting her large eyes. Pleased to meet you, Dr. Archer. Any friend of Adam's is a friend of mine. Though it pained him to loosen an arm from his body, the cold instantly invading its place, he took her hand and smiled through his physical misery. Those eyes were dark and expressive, he saw, perhaps a deep blue that was hard to tell in the evening dusk, but definitely amused or of good humor. Mm -hmm, Nice to meet you, Miss Parrish. Parrish, Archer contemplated like the glaring statue he passed regularly on campus. Likely related, he decided, based on her expensively clad angular body and that indefinable quality again, a self-assured bearing. He remembered to release her hand. Elizabeth, she corrected him. I'm sorry, but really, Adam, we must be going. We'll all freeze to death if we don't. Prescott will never forgive you if his twenty-ninth birthday should prove his last. Be right with you, Elizabeth. You go on. I'll catch up." Wakefield pivoted to Archer. Glad you'll be back in the lab when I return tomorrow night, old boy. I would worried I'd scared you off with my verbal meanderings. I will see you then, correct, Randall? Archer nodded, feeling frost, tingling his nose, toes, fingers, and ears. He dragged his eyes from Elizabeth's retreating figure. "Uh Uh-huh, I'll be there. Good, Wakefield exclaimed before dashing to catch his companion who loudly complained that his dawdling had given them all frostbite. As Archer hurried off in the other direction, Elizabeth, the only female in the group, could be heard asking, who was that? As he fled for the shelter of the laboratory, it never occurred to Archer to wonder at her meaning. He'd been reminded over and over again of his obvious otherness, which her question implied.
0: And that was Audrey Gale reading from The Human Trial. So, Audrey, you have these two male men characters who are based on real scientists, but you always like to also have a female perspective in your books. So (laughs) (laughs) and Elizabeth Parrish is uh, she's um, rebelling against the status quo for women of her class and generation is she modeled after a a true, a real historical person? No,
2: she's not. She's, but, but I couldn't just, uh, because of my sort of basic feminism, my experiences in the corporate world and so on, I, I just couldn't put her in as a love interest. I, although she is, but I, 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 I couldn't resist creating a female character of great privilege during the 1930s, from a very prestigious old Boston family, and uh, yet rebelling against the expectations for her in her life, which was to be a beautiful ornament and a support for her husband, to have a beautiful home and raise the perfect kids, and You know, entertain, raise money, be charitable, all of those good qualities, good quality, all of those good qualities. But she wanted to know who she was at a fundamental level. And she didn't want to just ride the coattail of her family's name. So she was rebelling against the expectations of her blue-blooded family. And um, so she ends up being a character that I just loved. Actually, I love them all. They're all, <laughs> quite, they're all quite flawed, and they have their foibles, and they make choices that have unforeseen consequences, as we all do. And um, But, yeah, she's a very interesting woman ahead of her time. Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of – there's certainly um, a focus on the class stratification mm-hmm. at Harvard and mm-hmm. in the medical school and – in the medical profession, and of course also sexism. And the, this is set when is the the book? When is he in school? It's 1930s. And so the book
2: opens when he is 16 year old. 16 years old in 1921. Okay. It it, it takes him through. Um, let's see, is it 12 years of school? I believe it was 12 years of school before he got his pathology specialization. So um, it's mostly set, the the entire story is mostly set in the 30s. It ends in 1939. And the name of that chapter is Outbreak. And it was in September of 1939 that uh, World War II broke out. Mm -hmm. So most of my chapter titles are politically oriented. Um, because it's a very interesting decade on on that score as well. Politics and history being, well, especially history, being another love of mine. And so there's quotes from Roosevelt. There's, you know, the New Deal, so on and so forth. Um, So the chapter heads tend to take us back into the actual history of the times, which we're very trying.
0: Well, do you think that there has been, been improvement in classism and sexism in med- in medicine since the 1930s?
2: Well, I would broaden it to say beyond medicine in the world. Uh, yeah, I think there's been some improvement, but I don't think we are, comp- I, I, I don't think anyone would. Well, let me ask you, <laughs> do, you do you feel the world thinks of women as complete equals in every level to men?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, certainly there's improvement, but I think in in academic science is one of the places where there's still certainly a lot of sexism. In fact, um, I we did a, I did a book not on the show not too long ago about the um, the women scientists who um, sued and won. And I I don't remember if that was Harvard at Harvard. It was one of the East, you know, East Coast schools Mm -hmm. where they realized even into not that long ago, they were getting the crumbs. And um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's
2: still happening. It still happens. And it's not just in medicine. It, and it's not just in science. It's, it's, uh, it's really just the way the world has evolved, unfortunately, for eons. And now it's just taking some, you know, baby steps, but in the right direction, which could lead us to really being valued for your contribution and your brain power and your hard work and all of that on an equal basis. I don't believe it's happening yet, but we're, we're hoping and it's coming. And by the way, in fact, in medicine, there are more female medical students today than male. Wow. So things have
0: to change. <laughs> oh, good. good. Wow. Yeah. And maybe they'll be less invested in maintaining the status quo.
2: Well, they certainly shouldn't should be less invested because that would just put them a step below all the guys. You know, I mean, they, they should change that should change things
0: just in itself. Yeah, it should. It should. Wow. What is your writing process like, Audrey? Do you write every day? Do you write solely on computer? Just give us a little little bit of a view into your life as a writer.
2: My life as a writer? Well, I'm not unlike many writer friends of mine, I do not get up at the crack of dawn and start writing and you know finish by noon. I am not a morning person, and ever since I left the corporate world behind, I've enjoyed so much not being a morning person. So I have a semi-leisurely uh, start. I write first thing when I get up, Um, but that's just kind of like morning pages. It's just sort of getting my writing juices going. Sometimes it's absolute drivel. Sometimes I'm working on a problem in my writing, but it can be about anything and everyone. Um, And then I usually work out first thing in the morning, and then I begin my day sort of late morning, noonish, And I usually write through the afternoon, and often into and beyond dinner if something is really happening. Um, And that's my best time to write. So that's what I, that's my process. And I, I almost exclusively write at my computer, but if I do feel there's a thorny problem that I don't see, feel myself getting my arms around, I do resort to pen and paper. But
0: that's relatively rare. Hmm. Do you plot the book out before you start writing? Uh,
2: I usually have I usually have a rough idea of the steps in the story and where the story is going to go. That, that is not written in stone, however. I'm, I'm sure many writers have told you that sometimes the characters take a turn that surprises you and things, they interact in ways you weren't totally anticipating. I know this sounds crazy, but it is kind of crazy. You get into a place where they're interacting in your mind. And so the story can change. And, of course, the, the real writing is, as I'm also sure you've heard from other writers, the real writing is editing. You know, you, 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 you I, I call it a mental dump. The, the, the thing I like to do is get get my story down from A to Z as quickly as I can, realizing that I will be editing it, well, in this case for years, and, <laughs> and you know, refining the writing when you do such a thing as a mental dump you're you're using words over and over again you're using expressions over and over again that all has to be refined and your characters usually have to be everything has to be refined so i spent a lot of
0: time editing so how long did you spend on this book
2: well this book is a kind of strange case because I, I tried to write the story before I got my master's in writing. And I, I think the story was too advanced for me at that point. So eventually I decided I wasn't understanding the environment of, of book publishing. It, it is a very peculiar business. Maybe not so much of a business as some kind of strange art form. <laughs> anyway, I was having understanding how it works. You know, like if you sent your work out to 10 people, you get 10 diametrically opposed opinions on what was good, bad, and indifferent. So you're not learning anything from all of this. So I I eventually decided to, that I needed to go back to school. So I put this whole thing aside and I went back to school And I had to write a novel to graduate from uh, University of Southern California. And that became my first book. So I took an idea that I'd had and I took it to USC and I took it through every class and I completely abandoned my own thoughts about approaches. And I took each professor's ideas about how to write and what's important and how you do things I just took it, I accepted it, and I applied this idea through every single class. And then at the end of all those classes, I had, um, I could rough out a novel, which became The Sausage Maker's Daughters. And, but that took some years of also refining, of of serious editing and refining. And then I, I, I took a year off because I was absolutely exhausted. I'd been driving all over the country. I I drove from Chicago to Des Moines. I drove from Des Moines to Minneapolis, like <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know, I, I was all over the country. I went to conferences, which the, the most of that has changed in today's world. And a lot of zoom, a lot of zoom meetings now and so forth. Um, and it, um, and anyway, so then I, I took a year off, and then I, I decided that I started to miss writing again. And slowly but surely, I went. I picked this book back up probably in the late 2014, maybe early 2015. And I worked on it until now.
0: And The Sausage Maker's Daughter was published in 2012? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And um, so, has do you f- feel like you've learned a lot since that book? I mean, is, is, are you still learning, I guess? A I, I'm
2: still learning because the business has changed so much since COVID. Mm. It's really changed so much since COVID. And now so much is reliant on uh, Amazon, big behemoth in the book world you know you, you can hardly beat them in terms of pricing and delivery overnight and all of that they've they've really rattled the book publishing world and so yeah so I'm still learning a lot because it's a brand new
0: business yeah. a brand new business the uh, the uh, book that I Talk, was talking about earlier, I was able to find it was by Kate Zernike, a New York Times reporter. Um, it's called *The Exceptions*: Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. Oh. And um, she, Kate, had broken the story for the Boston Globe and which in 1999. And the events of the book took place beginning in 1963, but it was yeah, it it's really interesting how. Um, all the women at MIT in science didn't really talk to each other because they were in different fields. And they all kind of thought it was just they, them that were getting short-changed. And really it was all of them were. And um, once they started talking to each other, they were able to, to change things.
2: So, well, isn't that an interesting fact?
0: Yeah. The, the, yeah. The divide, The divide and
2: conquer... Exactly. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know we, we women, since we're a, the biggest segment of the population, we, we could be incredibly powerful if we all figured out that we needed each other and what we wanted to do with all of that power. Yeah. That's right.
0: Well, yeah. Caroline, do you have some final words for us? Because we're about out of time. I know this
1: this is really fun fact, but, well, you know, I had trouble finding an outtake, but um, who knows what might be possible in the future for medical discoveries if everybody would work together.
2: Well, you know, um, I think it's coming. I, I, I have to say, Caroline, I think it's coming. I feel like this book is kind of riding a building wave. And the end of oh my, my book. God. At the end of my book, there's a, bi- a brief bibliography, and I just listed a few of the friendlier tomes that I've read that help me understand all of this. But if you just look at recently published titles, it's suggesting something. For example, one of them is "We Are Electric." Another one is life on the edge the coming age of quantum biology I, I mean this is suggesting that 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 the that people out there are aware and they're starting to talk about it in a much more public way mm-hmm. so hopefully that uh, 100 100 plus well, approximately 100 years suppression of this particular approach is 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 coming to an end. It can't truth will out, I guess is the word.
0: (laughs) It may take a while.
2: (laughs) It may take a hundred years, but it (laughs) will out.
0: Well thank you so much for being with us today, Audrey. Thank you very much, Monica and Carolyn. I wish I could have seen (laughs) Carolyn. I I know. (laughs) And see you all next week on Writers Voices.
2: And can I just say one thing? Uh, one thing to, to end, which is Gale, my last name is spelled G-A-L-E, like the storm, in case you're looking for the book, which I hope you are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, you
2: should, be. you should be looking for the book. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye. Bu- so much.